Tonight, the Taliban taking Kabul, Afghanistan's capital and last government stronghold. Smoke rising over the U.S. Embassy, Chinook helicopters taking off, evacuating U.S. personnel from the country and eerily reminiscent of the fall of Saigon. That was the scene one year ago this week when the United States hastily pulled out of Afghanistan, an ignoble end to a 20-year experiment in nation-building. As armed Taliban fighters swarmed into government buildings and took over the country, the world was privy to gut-wrenching scenes as thousands of Afghans who served as translators, co-workers, and allies on the battlefield desperately tried, along with their families, to get on airplanes to leave the country and avoid the inevitable retribution. Few were more emotionally involved in the effort to save those Afghans than Elliot Ackerman, a Marine who served five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, earning a Bronze Star for Valor. In his new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, he writes about his own frantic efforts, along with others, to line up charter flights to save his one-time Afghan colleagues. As America looks back on the country's humiliating withdrawal and takes stock of what Afghanistan has become under the harsh rule of our longtime enemies, we'll talk to Ackerman on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So it's hard to believe that it was only one year ago when we pulled out of Afghanistan in the most humiliating possible way. And, um, you know, so much has happened since from, you know, the uh, war in Ukraine to January 6th committee hearings, everything involving Donald Trump. But the Afghan pullout was a big deal. It was a big deal, both geopolitically, strategically and politically for Joe Biden. It's when his poll numbers started to tank. And it's worth going back and talking to Ackerman about just walking through what happened and why it was so upsetting to so many. There's a point that he makes in the book, which is in some ways symbolic of this moment. We're a year later, and Afghanistan is really not part of the conversation at all. We're heading into the midterm elections, even though it was a real problem for the Biden administration at the time it happened and in the, in the few months after that. You're not hearing anyone really talk about it. But in the book, he talks about how when we went in there 20 years ago, we built barracks and, and other structures with plywood. We didn't build them with uh, concrete. And the significance of that was we built things so that we could leave quickly with no real permanence at all. And that's, in a way, the American way of war, or at least the American way of getting out of wars and not staying committed, which is what this book is about. It's both a very powerful personal tale of war and also a very powerful indictment of the way we have waged war over the last couple of decades. I mean, if I can take some exception to to that, which is that at least the American way of war in the 21st century is not to just kind of 
go in and then leave quickly. We, we stayed in Afghanistan for, for 20 years. That's the longest war that the United States has, has ever been involved in. Right. But yes. But his point was we, we waged it in a way that we'd be able to leave at any particular moment. We, we, you know, there's a line in there. And without a coherent strategy. Right. I mean, that's he, one he, of his he quotes. He quotes yeah. uh, John that, Paul. That is the American way of war. He quotes yeah. John Paul, John Paul Van, who is the main character of uh, Neil Sheehan's uh, brilliant book about Vietnam, uh, A Bright Shining Lie, saying that, you know, the Vietnam War was a seven year war, but it was also seven one year wars. And in a way, Afghanistan was 21 year wars. There was never the real commitment to see it through, which is why you build with plywood and not with concrete. Well, yeah. you know, the, the argument would be because there was no way to see it through. I mean, nobody has ever successfully conquered and ruled Afghanistan. Fair point. Uh, it's the graveyard of empires. Fair point. I think on some level, U.S. strategists knew that. On the other hand, they were stuck, much as U.S. officials were stuck during Vietnam with not seeing an easy way out. So the easiest thing to do was to continue to muddle through. Yeah. And to kind of do a, another math formula it might not have been uh, 21-year wars. It might have been five four-year wars that were time for presidential election cycles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're so cynical, Victoria. <laughs> That's supposed to be our job. You're the wonk. We're the cynics. I, I'm Okay, I'm going to talk about the AUMF. <laughs> I know you're going to get to that, and uh, I will roll my eyes. But anyway, um, just one other point. A lot, lot to talk about with Ackerman, but one other point I just want to flag. The war in Ukraine, I mentioned it uh, a minute ago. Ackerman sees a connection between our pullout from Afghanistan and Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. We're going to talk to him about that. It's not something I've seen or heard a lot of people making. It's the last thing I'm sure the Biden White House wants to hear, but he's got some interesting points to make. And he's not a partisan and not a political partisan in any way, shape or form. That said, we've got a lot to talk about. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Elliot Ackerman, a Marine who served in Afghanistan, a best-selling New York Times author and the uh, author of the new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Elliot, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. So as you write in this book, this was a very personal story for you. Let's just take you back to a year ago. You're on vacation in Italy with your family and you learn what's going on in the country where you uh, once served. Just walk us through what you were doing, what you were experiencing and what you tried to do to help your former Afghan colleagues. Sure. Well, I mean, listen, I, you know, I, I served in Afghanistan and have many friends who are still, you know, in the military or, or work for the U.S. government. And so I've been watching the issue and things weren't looking good through the spring, through the summer. And you could see these cities throughout Afghanistan falling one after another. But this sort of all reaches this crescendo in the last two weeks of the summer. And at that point, you know, many of my Afghan friends, some of whom had come to the U.S., uh, and we're now American citizens who I'd fought with, you know, a decade before, you know, their families were still trapped in Afghanistan and subject to retribution from the Taliban. So they were panicking, trying to get their, you know, mother, father, sister, brother out of the country. And so my entire network lit up 
I think this was the case for most veterans, or at least most veterans I know, the same thing was happening to them. And because the administration really didn't have a plan for this, you know, there was no State Department email address I could hand one of my Afghan friends and feel in good conscience. So if you email this, you know, this address or call this phone number, you know, you'll be okay. What filled the vacuum was just this sort of massive crowdsourced evacuation with individual citizens raising money for private jets to fly in to pick people up with, you know, journalists I knew who were on the ground in Kabul volunteering to help Afghans navigate both the Taliban and American checkpoints into the airport. You know, and then with people like me calling up my old network in the military, folks I knew who were on the ground in Kabul saying like, you know, this is a person I'm trying to get into the airport. What do I need to do? How can I help them kind of usher them through so they're going to get on a flight? You know, and that occupied those all those weeks in August, sort of 24-7, trying to get, um, you know, at, fir at first, frankly, Afghans who I knew through, and then being involved in efforts that were getting really, you know, strangers through, just people who had been our allies, worked with the U.S. government, worked with the government in Afghanistan over these past 20 years. And so, it's the, so the story of that is what's reflected in the fifth act. And there's really five cases that I go into detail in the book that were five evacuation cases. Elliot, I mean, the really kind of powerful, implicit message in that story, which you alluded to, is that you and your friends and, and former compatriots in Afghanistan had to organize this digital Dunkirk, as it's been called. And the implicit message is that the U.S. government wasn't doing it. Um, you said they, they weren't prepared. But a year on from that chaotic withdrawal, how do you account for the fact that the uh, U.S. government and the Biden administration failed so miserably at uh, that, you know, very basic task. Yeah, well, I listen, I am. Um, first of all, I just want to sort of the disclaimer, like I'm not setting out to like settle any partisan scores in this in this book. I really kind of pride myself on not being a partisan. If we look back at a 20 year war that was fought by two Republican and two Democratic presidents, like there's plenty of blame to go around here. But you know, the short term decision making in 2021 as to exactly, you know, how we were going to do this certainly bears some scrutiny. And I think what the Biden administration suffered from and why it ended this way was there was a massive strategic miscalculation. The Biden administration, when they had announced the, announced the withdrawal from Afghanistan in April of 2021 and said that all U.S. troops would be gone by September 11th, baked into that calculus was an assumption. And the assumption was that when we left Afghanistan in September of 2021, as they planned, that the Afghan government was going to hold it together. Maybe they'd hold it together in perpetuity. Maybe it would be two years, six months. But there would be what Richard Nixon called in Vietnam, like the decent interval, meaning the time from our withdrawal to the time of any collapse were it to occur. The strategic miscalculation that the Biden administration made, their big screw up, was there was no decent interval. The reason you want the decent interval is when the collapse happens, if there's been a decent interval, you are not the one holding the bag. The Biden administration wouldn't be holding the bag. They could say, well, it collapsed, but you know, it didn't happen on our watch. And the problem is when it collapsed on their watch, it became their problem and their responsibility, and they didn't have a plan for it. And that was why you saw this just total pandemonium in August. And uh, you know, and it was why you, I mean, you know, first of all, the people who were at the airport, you know, who, you know, military and otherwise who work for the government, like they did an amazing job just under like, but they were in a really horrible situation. So like under the circumstances, they, my experience there was 
These people acted with incredible heroism trying to get folks out, but they never should have been in that position. And there was huge just voids that they couldn't fill trying to get, you know, trying to evacuate a whole country through, you know, a soda straw, which is Kabul International Airport. And kind of coming into the void were all of these civilian efforts to get people out as well. And that led to a lot of chaos and uh, a lot of confusion. And because we're all so interconnected, you know, whether it's TV or social media or even just our messaging apps, you know, Americans really felt it and they and they saw it probably in a way they've never seen it before. What do you think accounts for the failure to anticipate the collapse? You know, could they have seen that the collapse was so imminent? Hubris. I mean, I, I hate to be so pointed about it. Just hubris, this insistence, you know, we're right, we're leaving. That's that. I just, I, you know, listen, I, I bring it up for Tori because there were people very clearly and vocally saying this. I mean, national figures, uh, people like uh, Representative Jason Crow, Seth Moulton, Peter Mayer, you know, there were two dozen members of Congress signed a letter in the spring of 2021 demanding from the White House saying, what is the plan to evacuate Afghanistan? Please present us as lawmakers with your plan because you don't have a plan. And that that letter was delivered to the White House with reasonable amount of fanfare in the media. I'm a journalist, too. I wrote about it at the time for The Atlantic. And there was no response from the White House. Nothing. So there was this belief that, you know, we're going to get out. And the plan is we will leave and then the Afghan government will stay in place for some amount of time. And then when the collapse comes, it won't be on our watch. And that's fine. You know, that that is a plan. I'm not saying that's an unreasonable plan. But what happens when that doesn't occur? There was no contingency plan. And listen, if we look at the war on terror, you know, we've seen that happen once before. Right. I mean, we all remember Iraq 2003 will be greeted as liberators. But what happens when we weren't greeted as liberators in 2003 in Iraq and there was an insurgency? The Bush administration had no plan for that either. So you can see the trend lines here. And I think, you know, to your point, that that is why it happened. There was a hubris, a belief that we know how this is going to go and our plan is going to work. That was also indisputably coupled, I think, with decades of congressional as well as administrative callousness for special immigrant visas and for dealing with multiple people in Afghanistan who were trying to get out. I'm sure that the barriers that you faced a year ago were decades in the making. So why has Congress and the and the president been so reluctant to reform or grapple with its moral obligations to the Afghan people? Absolutely. First of all, the, the issue of special immigrant visas, I mean, we talk about how there's plenty of blame. I mean, the administration that brought basically the special immigrant visa program to a standstill was the Trump administration. Um, And I think for, you know, many years, there's just been this desire to kind of have the Afghan war go away. There's sort of been, I think your, your term callousness is the right one. And there's still a degree of callousness about it because, you know, we have whatever happened last summer. I mean, it happened and there's much we could learn from it, but we did manage to get a not insignificant number of Afghans to the United States, um, around 70,000 last I counted, um, special immigrant who were on the special immigrant visa program. Many of them right now can't work. They don't have the work permits they need to, to legally work, to begin on their pathways to citizenship. And even those in the United States are stuck in limbo to say nothing of the ones who we evacuate to third countries who can't get into the US. And so there are bits of legislation right now, like the Afghan Adjustment Act, you know, they're winning their way through Congress, but, you know, we should make those priorities. Like, let's get those passed um, and let's do right by the people who we did manage to get out. 
So I want to talk in a minute about what's become of Afghanistan under the Taliban and what the repercussions have been about this from this experience. But since we're starting with the events of a year ago, if you were in the White House in the spring and summer of 2021, what would you have been arguing the administration should be doing? Well, by that spring, I would have been arguing that we that, OK, our plan is that we're going to withdraw, you know, have the withdrawal in September. I you would, you would have stuck to that. You would have stuck to the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. No, I, I know I wouldn't have. I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking me, like, once that decision had been made, I actually don't think we should have pulled. OK, I don't think we should have pulled every single U.S. soldier out of Afghanistan. I don't think that, you know, that that having no troops in a country is what makes the war end. I think what makes the war end is that Americans stop bleeding in that country. Um, that's what sort of makes the war end. I mean, that's a much broader conversation. But if we want to talk kind of the tactics of that summer, I would have I would have argued for a very strong and robust contingency plan as things started going south. Like we need to be ready if we have to evacuate in a hurry to just start getting people to Guam. A massive, massive airlift. We need to have all of our resources positioned to do so. You know, we need to have more troops at the airport, not less troops at the airport. We need to, you know, the 82nd Airborne Division, for instance, this is what they do, airfield seizures. We need to negotiate with the Taliban to have a much bigger buffer zone around Kabul. There were moments in mid-August where we were actively talking with the Taliban and they were asking us, how quickly do you want us to move on Kabul? And we were basically telling them the only thing we need is the airport. So I think we should have been more aggressive signaling to the Taliban that this evacuation is going to be done on our timeline, not your timeline. And then we should have seen how it went. But I think the problem with what we saw was all throughout that summer, there was this, there not a sense, there was a reality that the United States, that we had our back up against the wall. And the president went on TV multiple times saying, everyone's got to be out by the end of August. This has to happen. It's non-negotiable. And if our back was up against a wall, it was a wall that we created. I mean, we're the ones who announced September 11th, 2021, and we're the ones who moved that date to August 31st. Uh, if we wanted more time, we should have asked for more time and taken more time. And I think we could have done so. You know, we frankly are the United States. Like we have a lot of leverage, but we seemed incapable of using that leverage. The counter to your argument that we should have been pulling out more quickly, more aggressively earlier, is that that would have triggered the collapse of the Afghan government. And, and so I military. think, and I think, and this is, we said, you know, had I been in the White House, it would have been one of these, we need to not, you know, be the ones who instigate this toppling and this massive vote of no confidence. But if that is going to happen, regardless, we need to have the contingencies in plan, like the strategic airlift, and we need to thought through what this is going to look like if everything does collapse, so we can hold it together long enough for us to get all the people out we need to get out. And I don't think it's unrealistic to believe that the Taliban would have been aligned with that vision. Because like a lot of the people who left, they didn't want to stay in Afghanistan because these people are instigators. They're troublemakers for the Taliban who know that when this war ends, they're going to have to figure out how to govern the country. So, Elliot, we're talking about tactical mistakes in the last few months of the war and the withdrawal. But your book is also a searing indictment of the U.S. government's strategy or lack thereof going back to the very beginning of the war. And I think you point out somewhere that the wars where 
we have a clear strategy of the wars we win, and when we have a vague strategy, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq uh, or Afghanistan, we tend not to have a, a clear, we have a vague strategy. But you also make this uh, interesting point. I want to read this very short couple of sentences from the book uh, that I think goes to the heart of the problem here, which is you say that after 9-11, in the opening act of the wars that followed, the Bush administration engineered a new type of war, one that is ahistorical and seemingly without end. Never before had America engaged in a protracted conflict with an all-volunteer military that was funded through deficit spending. And it seems to me that if the American people had more skin in the game, their political leaders would probably not go into war without clearer strategies. Um, now, that wasn't the case in Vietnam, obviously. But uh, talk about that, that issue and that recurring problem uh, among our politicians. Well, Dan, you, you, know, you say it wasn't the case in Vietnam, and I, I agree with you, but it was the reason the Vietnam War ended. I mean, there was a full-throated anti-war movement in the United States that made it impossible for LBJ and then Nixon to continue to perpetuate the war. And we never had that in America. Right, and that was a seven-year war, right? Was Afghanistan war. was a 20-year war. And right, and when I was growing up, because you know, I'm a, my parents were of the Vietnam generation, like people like seven years, Vietnam, that's a long war. You know, we just did a 20-year war. So, you know, it might seem counterintuitive, but like when you have a war that is funded through deficit spending, fought, involved, fought by an all-volunteer military, the result is that the American people are anesthetized to the war. Nobody feels it, no one thinks about it. And the result of that is you're basically giving our political class this really long leash to go run around and wage war and no one's paying attention and there's zero accountability. Like that's not healthy. They should be on a tight leash. And the way you keep them on a tight leash is you make them pay for it and you make them go to America's parents and say, we need your sons and daughters to do this because it's so critical for the safety of our nation. And if our politicians can't reach that relatively high bar, then guess what? They don't get to go to war. Now the problem is the bar is like so low because again, we don't pay war tax, so we don't have to pay for it. We don't feel like we pay for it. And you do have a, a soldiering caste that has emerged in the United States, just like every other facet of American life has atomized. Well, the US military has atomized. Do you favor reinstating the draft? I do. I do. I'm in favor of a draft. I don't think we need to have a draft where like 50% of the U.S. military are draftees, but I think like 5% were. And mm -hmm. if every American knew that like when their child came of age, there was a one in 20 chance that they would be wearing a uniform for two years, like we would, we would be talking about these issues with much more rigor than we talk about them today. And I think that would be a good thing for our democracy to say nothing of what the, you know, what military service or just national public service has done to sort of the health of our civic life. You know, the U.S. military is a great it's a great societal leveler. It forces people from different backgrounds to sort of come together um, and have a, a common experience. So I am I am for a draft because I am I am not for wars where there is very little political accountability for the war. I feel contractually obliged to raise the authorized use of milita military force, the AUMF, so that Mike Kisikoff can roll his eyes at me asking this question. Um, <laughs> Only because we've been talking about it for 20 years. So, <laughs> More so. Uh, yeah. for, for people unfamiliar with the AUMF, that's the uh, resolution that uh, Congress passed in the wake of 9-11 that essentially uh, is the legal underpinning for exactly what you're talking about, Elliot. Why has Congress been unable 
to change or repeal the AUMF? Well, because I think that they're, you know, I think the politicians from, you know, Republican and Democratic administrations, you know, are in, you know, they don't necessarily want more scrutiny of their foreign policy. And so they both recognize that this gives them the ability to enact a foreign policy uh, without having to go back, you know, for the executive to enact a foreign policy without having to go back to Congress every time. And Congress doesn't want to be on the hook for all of the president's foreign policy decisions. So it's sort of everyone mutually benefits from this. And it leads to these, you know, quote unquote, forever wars. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, I write a little bit about the Global War on, War on Terrorism Memorial Act which was passed a couple of years ago to create a memorial, a national memorial on the mall to the war on terror. But one of the things that was really interesting in the passage of that act is that the um, representatives Gallagher and Moulton, who are the co-sponsors, one of the things they had to get around was you're technically not allowed to create a war memorial to a war that's still going on. And the AUMF means the war is still going on, but this war has been going on for 20 years. So like if you were a, let's say a Lieutenant Colonel when the war on terror began, which meant you were like in your early forties, well, now you're like in your early 60s and they actually want to like get this memorial built so that the people who fought in the war might be able to see it in their own lifetime. But the war is still going on. So we're sort of in this very weird headspace with this endless war headspace um, where we it doesn't allow us to go through sort of the normal actions we go through in beginning wars, ending wars, how we think about wars. It's just sort of perpetual war. And again, I think it's it's really unhealthy. By the way, Elliot, speaking of war memorials, you have a really interesting and unique idea for what kind of war memorial we should have in this country. Why don't you tell us uh, about that? You know, it's interesting. So we all know that kind of our war memorials are on the National Mall. And um, that actually really is a recent phenomenon. The first national war memorial on the mall was the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which was opened in 1983. And then you saw the Korean War Memorial, the Second World War Memorial was opened in 2003. And now we talk, you know, I'm talking about the Global War on Terrorism Memorial. Building a national memorial on the mall is very controversial. You know, it, it's difficult to do. It does it disrupt the feeling of the mall. And um, I thought, you know, it might be more apt to just get like, let's eliminate that debate. First of all, I don't know if our mall should necessarily sort of feel like a, a national graveyard just littered with our war memorials. Maybe there's we should be commemorating other things on the National Mall about American life, not just our wars. But it made me think, you know, what if we got all of the war memorials and consolidated them into a single just American war memorial? And if I were to build that war memorial, I feel like it would sort of look a little bit like the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial, like a sort of a long, black, sloping granite wall. And in my mind, it would be sort of like conical. So like it would just be dug into the earth, like something out of Dante, sort of circling downward. So we wouldn't be, so every time there was a war, we wouldn't have to have these debates about building up. We'd actually be digging down. And if there's one thing you learn how to do in the military, it's how to dig in. Um, so it seems appropriate. And we would just dig ourselves deeper. And on this sloping granite wall, you would have chronologically listed all of America's war dead, starting with uh, Crispus Attucks, a black free man who was killed at the Boston Massacre, more than a million names going up to the last service member killed in action. And so the last part of my war memorials I envision is, is when you got to that very last name sort of deep into this pit, there would be two things. There would be a desk and there would be a pen. And that when Congress built this war memorial, this American war memorial, in the passage of that act would be a provision that anytime the president, anytime he or she was going to sign a troop deployment order 
the only pen and place they were authorized to sign it was at that desk at the very bottom of the American War Memorial. And so we would sign those deployment orders there. And each time somebody was killed, we would stop having these debates about war memorials on the mall. We would just sort of dig deeper and add to the names. And to me, that, that would feel like the most sort of appropriate war memorial you could have. Curious whether or not there are any takers for this war memorial idea that you've got. <laughs> I don't know. Come find me. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll show you my drawings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, look, we got into Afghanistan in the first place because of 9-11 and to get rid of al-Qaeda. So let's cut to the summer of this year. President Biden orders a successful strike and kills Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda. On the one hand, that would seem to be vindication of what he argued originally, that we would retain our over-the-horizon capabilities to strike potential threats against the United States. On the other hand, the fact that the leader of al-Qaeda was in downtown Kabul, surrounded by, you know, Taliban members and the Haqqani network, mm -hmm. seemingly in total contradiction of what we were assured a year ago. What do you make of that? I think it shows a, listen, I think it shows a strategic failure. I think um, the fact that that is being trotted out as a victory to me is concerning because although it might be right, sure, it's a tactical success. Like we, you know, we used a predator drone to kill a terrorist. Like there's never been any question that we're good at that. We've been doing it for 20 years. We've built that capability. We as the United States are very good tactically at killing terrorists, but killing terrorists is not a strategy. And what this shows is a strategic failure. Like Afghanistan is once again, a safe haven for members of Al Qaeda. We do not have a really granular understanding of what's going on there. Although we, you know, I'm, I'm sure we still do have assets that are in Afghanistan and we're sort of back to square one a little bit. So, one of the things, if we look uh, at the 20 years of war, too, is I think one of the reasons we've we've ended up at this place is we've often conflated tactical victory with strategic victory. We haven't known the difference between the two. Uh, and that goes for Afghanistan. It also goes for Iraq, where we were very good at killing terrorists. But that is not a strategy. So we have the apparent al-Qaeda presence still in Afghanistan, uh, as exhibited by uh, Zawahiri's presence there. But there are also these really gut-wrenching accounts of what life is like today in Afghanistan, particularly for women. The Taliban have restored you know, much, if not all, of the restrictions they put on women originally when they took control of the country. Uh, there was an account on uh, NPR the other day about forced marriages and and Taliban fighters spotting women they wanted to marry on the streets and just ordering them to come with them. I mean, what do you make of Afghanistan today and what it has become as a result of our withdrawal? Well, I think you, you know, you've seen a massive uh, regression and Afghanistan has regressed to what it was uh, in, when the Taliban ruled in the 1990s. But the difference between now and the 1990s is that that regression you know, is is something that we as Americans are partially accountable for. And I don't say it's, you know, listen, when I say there's plenty of blame to go around, there's plenty of blame to put onto the Afghans as well. I mean, it's not as though, you know, the Afghan, you know, people, you know, and, and individuals in Afghanistan and corruption in Afghanistan, all these things we've done about for 20 years aren't also to blame. You know, they are. Um, but we're sort of all complicit in this. We all lost together. 
And that's what, you know, makes it tragic. Um, I don't have any word for it. It's, it's, it's tragic. I mean, 20 years of effort, 20 years of energy, um, and it just regresses into Taliban control of Afghanistan. That being said, I don't want to end on, you know, too horribly grim a note. I would, I would point out that the Taliban are learning that it is far more difficult to govern Afghanistan than to run an insurgency in Afghanistan. And the 20 years that we spent there didn't just vanish. I mean, you have a much more connected population in Afghanistan. You have a population that has lived and grown up in a very different way than they did in the 1980s. So you have, and you have a young population there. So I don't think you know we have seen necessarily the final chapter in Afghanistan, but I think you know the next few years are going to be filled with challenges for the Afghan people. You say that that it was a a collapse of American morals and competence, but you are very careful not to say that it was a betrayal. And a lot of people throw that word around loosely, and they did a year ago when this happened. It's just explain that. Why why do you not choose to call it a betrayal? Um, because I think betrayal impugns a sort of evil and sinister motive to people who are working on this issue. You know, like, you know, do I think that Joe Biden or even Donald Trump or any of these people, you know, who are evil, you know, are, are, are well, vis-a-vis Afghanistan, do I think like they're twisting their mustaches and trying to hurt people in Afghanistan? I don't. You know, I think they adopted a number of misguided policies that didn't work out. And so that's why I don't say betrayal. I think collapse. I just think collapse. I think collapse is a is a more apt word. You know, collapse. Is you're trying to hold something up, and it, you know, and and, and you fail. Um, and so I just think this is a massive fail. I, I, I would be lying to you if I told you at times I really didn't. I did. I myself didn't feel betrayed. I certainly felt betrayed a lot during this. But I don't. I don't know. I just doesn't seem appropriate. I don't, I don't. I don't need to be walking around and you know impugning sinister motives on folks. So, Elliot, you you just wrote in the Atlantic the botched NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan emboldened Vladimir Putin as he weighed whether to invade Ukraine, as did his visions of restoring Russia to its borders. That's a uh, pretty harsh point to make for the Biden White House. I'm sure. Explain why you think that's the case. I think it's obviously the case. I mean, listen. Putin's sitting here at his, you know, at his dacha in Sochi in the August of 2021. I'm sure he's got a television and he turns on the TV and, you know, he's kind of thinking about Ukraine and what he's going to do there next year. And he turns on the TV and he watches those scenes from Kabul, which were like breathtaking. I mean, I think they were breathtaking for Americans just to, to see, you know, the great American military juggernaut leaving Afghanistan you know, with its tail between its legs, to see the U.S. military and NATO taking terms, being dictated terms by forty to 50,000, you know, Taliban fighters is sort of breathtaking. And so Putin saw all that. And he saw it all at a time when he was deciding what he was going to be doing in Ukraine. And I, you know, I think it's just obvious that, that, that the, the, the weakness, the, the weakness he saw in NATO there you know, certainly contributed to his calculus. I'm not going to say it's the sole variable, but I'm certainly contributed. I think what's remarkable is that within a single, you know, within a six month window, you see both probably NATO's darkest hour followed by one of its brightest, which is the way the alliance held together and really overperformed in Ukraine. 
So much so that now, you know, Finland and Sweden are NATO countries. I mean, I don't think anyone would, I don't think anyone would think in a six month period, you could see NATO underperform so dramatically and then overperform so dramatically. And that has been dizzying. And I just bring it up because it's important to, you know, when we look at Afghanistan, Ukraine, Taiwan, you know, these, these aren't stovepiped issues. They, they interrelate. And we are now, I think, we have now re-entered an era of great power competition. And so we sort of need to think in multipolar ways. And yet, Elliot, we have not, the U.S. has not sent a single troop uh, to Ukraine. Uh, we are not sending offensive weapons uh, to Ukraine. Biden has made his decision to minimize our involvement there. Obviously, we are providing an enormous amount of military aid and, you know, imposing, econo- you know, punishing economic sanctions on the Russians. How do you see that policy in light of your experience uh, in Afghanistan, the decisions that were made in the both the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, are these lessons that we have learned? Are these the right policy decisions in light of all of that? Well, I think it's really important whenever, you know, when you're talking foreign policy, you always have to, you always have to be talking foreign policy while in kind of the back of your head, you're thinking about domestic policy. So like when Biden's talking about Ukraine, you know, and he's constantly saying what he's not gonna do, you know, I look at it, I'm like, like, this is ridiculous. Don't tell them what you're not going to do. You're just negotiating yourself. Keep them guessing a little bit as to what you're going to do. That will make you stronger. Um, and, and I don't believe then you have to, you know, and then you have to fear that you're going to cross some red line and we're immediately going to be in World War III. But when he's saying not a single U.S. troop is going to be in Ukraine, you know, that is a message that's, I, I think, less geared toward Vladimir Putin's ears and is more geared to the ears of the American people. So, um, yes, yeah, so yes, I think that is sort of, you know, if we want to understand why he's postured himself that way. I think, you know, it, it's it's some of this is aimed at domestic uh, politics. But I think particularly in his early response to the war in Ukraine, it didn't seem to me that he had a good grasp quickly enough of how the American people viewed Ukraine very, very differently than Afghanistan. I mean, one of the things that was remarkable to see this sort of bipartisan consensus in late February and early March about a U.S. response to Ukraine and to see, you know, you know, everyone from Kevin McCarthy to Nancy Pelosi sort of aligned on the idea that we can't let the Russians just operate with total impunity and invade a country um, like Ukraine. And it was sort of a it was the closest I had seen to a unified political response in America since September 11th. It wasn't quite as strong as September 11th, obviously, but it was the first time I'd sort of seen us all get together. Um, since then on an issue. And obviously that's sort of, you know, dissolved now with, you know, Mar-a-Lago has been raided and we're kind of back, you know, back gazing at our American naval again. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's been interesting to watch that. Or it's remarkable to me that Ukraine and Afghanistan are happening so proximate to each other because they have evoked such different responses. But look, granted, we do not have U.S. troops, but we've gone pretty all in for Ukraine oh, yeah. in this conflict, mm-hmm. and which you rightly say has become a war of attrition, which suggests a protracted war. And as your book points out, you know, we are not good at wars of attrition. America does not have the stamina for years of conflict overseas. So that being the case, are you at all worried that the same factors that caused us to pull out of Afghanistan may give pause to continued support for the Ukrainian military in a war of attrition. I mean, it's interesting. Um, it's all about how you sort of, you know, how you look at the problem in some respects. So 
in Ukraine right now, I think we have a, you have a situation. If you look at the, you know, Russia is struggling. You know, Russia has lost. You know, the most conservative numbers I've heard is thirty five thousand dead Russians since the war began in February, and I've heard numbers that are higher. That's a lot of dead Russians. That to give you a sense, Russia fought in Afghanistan for for ten years, a war that many would say contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Fifteen thousand Russians were killed in those ten years. Our war in Afghanistan, you know, you add the war to Iraq to that, about 5,000 dead Americans in these wars over 20 years. They've lost more than 35,000 in less than a year. If you look, you know, Putin is struggling to fill the ranks of his army. He doesn't want to declare war, so he can't really up the conscription rates. That's why it's still this special military operation. They're, they're actually, the Russian problem right now is with manpower in Ukraine. And they have, they have the Ukrainians outgunned in terms of equipment. The Ukrainians have the Russians completely outmanned in so much as the entire population of Ukraine, and I've, you know, I've spent time in Ukraine since the war started and beforehand, are completely aligned to fight. Like if, if, if President Zelensky were to start negotiating with the Russians and giving them parts of Ukraine for a peace deal, there would be a referendum and he would be out of office immediately. He has to fight. That's how popular this war is. But the challenge the Ukrainians have is are they going to continue to have the weapons they need to fight? And that is largely a question of NATO will and Western will. And so I don't know, you know who necessarily wins that, that type of a war of attrition, but I bring it up because what's being attrited is different. You know, On the one hand, is Russia trying to attrit NATO's will to keep arming the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians are trying to kill enough Russians so that Putin just can't keep recruiting the numbers he needs without declaring a war and having all the attendant political problems that come with that. So it's, I don't know how it's going to end, but it's, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm watching. Do you see a strategy by which the Ukrainian military can dislodge the Russians from the territory they've already seized? I think the strategy for the Ukrainians is to keep themselves well armed and to keep killing Russians in large numbers. And if they can do both those things, they can potentially win, but much rests on the appetite of NATO and the West to keep arming the Ukrainians through, you know, two, three, four, five fighting seasons and to deal with, you know, the economic pain at the pump and the other things we know about that the Russians are trying to, to project onto Europe. And, you know, and so, but the Ukrainian strategy is keep the weapons coming and we'll kill enough Russians so they have to leave. And the Russian strategy is, you know, make this war very difficult for Europe create frat, create, create, you know, breaks in the alliance so that the weapons start coming to the Ukrainians and then we'll be able to kill enough Ukrainians and outgun them and win the war. I have sort of one last personal question uh, that I wanted to ask you. Uh, Elliot, you and I both went to the same famously progressive high school um, in Washington, D.C., Georgetown Day School. Not exactly a hotbed for uh, military recruiting. As I recall, Marcus Raskin the radical anti-war activist sent his kids to GDS, including Jamie Raskin, a uh, many-time guest on Skullduggery. I don't know a single graduate of GDS who served in the military or went to war, as far as I know. Now, you are of a different generation. You're of the 9-11 generation. But what made you decide to sign up and, and, and ultimately go to war? And did anybody else in your class do that? I'll give the brief answer. I signed up for really three reasons. First of all, I wanted a job or whether I was good at my job or bad at my job, it really mattered. I wanted responsibility at a young age, and I could think of nowhere else where they would put you in charge of 40 people when you're 22 years old. 
And I got that in the Marines. Um, I grew up overseas. I think kind of being a little bit removed from the United States just, you know, gave me a sense of what it means to be American, some of the benefits that we have here. And it made me want to get back and serve. And the last is I was sort of that kid who never stopped playing with his GI Joes. So I always had an inherent interest in the military. So you sort of line those three up and I wind up in the Marines. If you got two seconds for an anecdote, I'll tell you a story about another student from Georgetown Day School. Absolutely. So I was class of 1998 there. I went to the ROTC program and I was home from college after, right after 9-11. And I was at the 930 Club, you know, famous sort of DC well. music spot. And I bumped into this guy named Rajai Haki, uh, Syrian descent, who was a year behind me at GDS. And he's like, Elliot, I'm so glad I bumped into you. He's like, you know, college kind of hasn't been going well. I'm going to drop out and I want to join the Marines. And that's what you're doing, right? And I was like, yeah. And so we talked about the Marines and this and that. And I wished him well. And, you know, and he told me he was he was thinking about enlisting. Go forward two years later, it's 2003, the year that Russia or that um, that um, that uh, the Iraq war begins. And the Washington, I'm, I'm looking at the Washington Post and they ran this photographic profile. It was like it was like portraits of the invasion. And it was all profile, you know, little photographs of people who are part of the invading units. And I see a photograph of Rajai from Georgetown Day School. I bumped into in the bar. I'm like, wow, I guess he enlisted in the Marine Corps. And it showed that he was like a, you know, he was uh, working as like a paralegal clerk with the third Marine air wing or something, kind of a behind the lines job. But like, I'm like, that's wow, he, he enlisted. Cool. So anyways, fast forward another year. Now it's the fall of 2004. I'm a rifle platoon commander in Iraq. And my battalion, which is about a thousand Marines, which, oh, it was the first battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, which by coincidence happened to be the infantry battalion at Kabul airport this summer, just an aside, show you what a small world it is. But um, we get called, told that a group of members of Al Qaeda in Iraq, a couple hundred have taken over the city of Hit, the city in Western Iraq. There's one platoon of Marine snipers that's been pinned down and basically, you know, shooting these at these guys all day. And our battalion of a thousand, if we need to come in in the middle of the night, we're going to drive across Iraq and we're going to roll into the city first thing in the morning and be in this huge battle with these AQI guys. So we kind of we drive all night, two or three in the morning. We fan out around the city. My the company I'm in, there are three platoons in a company. I had the first platoon. It's about 150 Marines. We're going to walk kind of underneath this underpass with train tracks on top of it. We're going to come in the city and we're told it's just going to be like full on battle when we get into this city from all the intelligence briefings we've gotten. So my platoon is the first in line on our company. It's probably about 4.30 in the morning. You can maybe see like a first seam of light on the horizon. And um, we're getting last minute radio checks. I've got my radio. And uh, one of my guys comes up to me and he's like, you know, Lieutenant Ackerman, sir, we need to do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. I hear this voice behind me. He goes, Ackerman? Elliot Ackerman? I said, yeah, what is it? Dude, what's up? It's Rajai. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing here? And the radio crackles to life. And I'm told, hey, everyone move in. We're going to the city. And we like take off. And he told me he was my interpreter because he's Syrian American. He spoke Arabic. And there was a shortage. So he and I, two GDS students, met up in Iraq. He was Corporal Rajai at that point. And we um, we fought in the Fallujah battle was the next month. And he was with us in Fallujah. And he and I uh, said, well, you know what we got to do? We got to get a photograph for the alumni magazine. So, <laughs> we, so we took this photograph of us and it was um, we're standing on this like pile of rubble in the middle of Iraq. We've got our rifles slung across our chest and on the back of a meals ready to eat box in marker, we wrote Fallujah, Iraq, 2004, USMC, go hoppers. 
because George Sound Day School mascot are the grasshoppers. That's how, yeah, progressive school. That's how ferocious the mascot is. <laughs> yeah, the grasshoppers. Well, yeah. you know, so well, the, the little known grasshoppers. The little known right. contribution, uh, contributions of, of, of grasshoppers to America's wars. By the way, I was the more typical GDS student. My parents wouldn't allow me to have uh, G.I. Joe soldiers. So there yeah. you go. That's why I didn't end up well, with the, um, with the, with the uh, sterling on, military on, career as you did. On this note, as I, I I should point out that as, as rare as it is for uh, Georgetown Day School graduates to join the U.S. military, it's also relatively rare for those who do join the military to become New York Times bestselling authors uh, of both <laughs> novels and nonfiction. So, uh, Elliot, you are uh, doubly unusual uh, in that respect. His new book is The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Elliot, thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Oh,